Today's reading is John 4:46 through 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so in our, our, our passage this morning, things are kind of coming full circle. Jesus goes back to the place where it all started. And this portion of John, John's gospel, starts with this amazing prologue, and then we meet John the Baptist, and then we get this, this, this cycle that starts with the wedding at Canaan Galilee and ends with this healing miracle here. And so uh, the first sign, John tells us, was this turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And so Jesus' ministry starts with him saving a wedding. And his Galilean ministry ends with him delaying a funeral. So we've got weddings and we've got funerals. Jesus was the original pastor. He is our example. There at those crucial moments, defining moments of existence. And so these are two crucial signs John wants us to know about understanding who Jesus is. That, 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 that at the wedding he reveals himself as the giver of joy. And here with this royal official son, he's the giver of life. And one of the points, Jesus says, of, of his whole ministry, of his, his word becoming flesh and coming into the world, is, is later in John chapter 10, it says that I came that you might have life and have it in abundance. This combination of joy, this combination of life, that's why Jesus came. And these two signs show us that you know, in the first instance, Jesus is Lord over time. He, he, he takes a, a process that normally takes months or years to turn water into wine, and it happens in an instance. And, and, and here he reveals himself in the second sign as the Lord over space, that he doesn't even need to be physically present in order to heal this young boy. And so while these stories, they reveal the incredible power of Jesus, with this second sign, there's also a, a, a shadow side. There was with the first as well. Well, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. That he understood that somehow um, beginning his ministry with this first sign was setting in motion the events that would lead to his death. There's a shadow side to the second sign as well. And, and honestly, in this story, if we're reading it, Jesus doesn't strike us as particularly compassionate in his response to this official. The father comes to him and, 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 you know, desperately is pleading with Jesus to do something about the illness of his son. His son is sick to the point of death. And, and Jesus' response, it, it's not even not compassionate, but it strikes us as a bit of a non sequitur. How does one thing follow the other? Heal my son, says the official, and Jesus says, unless, you know, and this is where we need like the southern translation of the Bible, unless y'all see signs 
Y'all won't believe. Jesus isn't even speaking, you know, to this singular person, this singular you, but he's, but he's speaking to, you know, a broader you, the group of people who are around him. And so that raises this question, what's the matter with science? What's the problem with science? And I, I, that was the question that really intrigued me. And so that's, I think, where we need to start. Because while Jesus performs many signs, you know, John calls them signs and and in other gospels, they're called miracles or, or deeds of power. Jesus, you know, this is kind of one of his calling cards. That's what he does. But even though that's something that Jesus is known for, that he builds his reputation upon and, and helps him attract a, a large following, he's not entirely comfortable with the attention that they bring him. And so as we go through this passage this morning, we're kind of going to do three things. First, just look at the problem of signs and, and what is it about those that, that trouble Jesus, that we need to be wary of. And then, and then we'll look at this official and the evolution of his faith, and, and then the, the last moment, just contrast two sons. So first, what's the matter with signs? Why does it bother Jesus that people want them? In another gospel, you know, Jesus says, only a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign. So not exactly mincing words with what he says. And it was on this question, you know, this is where it's good to turn to kind of wiser people, more thoughtful commentators. And, and, and I found a couple of, of, of um, people who I read this past week to be really, really helpful on this point. What could the problem with signs be? What's, what's the matter with them? And so the first came from one of my favorites, one of my favorite commentators on, on Scripture. You know, this, I'm not going to say N.T. Wright. I'm not going to say G.K. Chesterton. This is someone else. Uh, the late, great uh, missionary and theologian, his name was Leslie Newbegin. And he came from India, and he, and, he, and, he, and he served as a missionary, a British missionary in India, and actually helped found uh, the Church of South India. And, and he was a master of this question of contextualization. How do we take the gospel, um, this message about Jesus, and bring it to, to culture so that it, it kind of takes an indigenous place within that culture, that it makes sense within the terms of that culture, that it affirms what it can affirm in that culture, and also challenges it. And so Newbegin was always thinking about how the gospel... Um, can be at home in any culture, and also how it, it, it's strange in every culture. And, and he wrote this commentary on John, and, and he actually saw the West, one of his great insights was that he saw the West becoming a mission field, that, that we need to recontextualize the gospel. And, and, and he talks about the problem with signs in his commentary on John, and he says, the demand for a visible sign means that the one who makes the demand keeps the ultimate sovereignty in his own hands. He has himself prescribed the test by which divinity must prove itself. In other words, the demand for a sign, the desire for a sign, is one way that, that we place ourselves in a position above God. We set the bar that God must clear. We make the demands that God must meet. So it's a way of putting ourselves in God's position and putting God in our own. And, and I think this violates just one of the foundational axioms of what it means to be a well-adjusted, spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy, flourishing human being. And that's this. God is God, and you are not. We are not. Trying to play God, trying to replace God, it, it only ever ends in unhappiness. Because it's a job description that is way too big for us. It's way beyond our pay grade. You know, there's the unhappiness it leads to if, when we place ourselves in God's shoes, and it leads to this kind of narcissism where we inflate and project our, our egos, and, and then we just have to protect that at all cost. 
Or it can lead to the unhappiness of anxiety as we recognize our inability to exert control over people and events and things that are just beyond our capacity to control. There's a world of difference, even in saying this, between the desire for influence and the desire for control. You know, it's, it's healthy to recognize that you have agency and you have influence over the things that happen around you. But, but the latter, the, the attempt to try to control things that you can't, it's, it's destructive. So that's one problem, that we, we place ourselves over against God when we demand a sign. But, but another problem, it's, it's maybe more subtle, but I think it's just as important as well. And um, uh, I was reading a, a commentary written by a, a woman named Gail O'Day. She passed away a couple years ago, and she was at Wake Forest. She was a New Testament scholar, and, and she had some really thoughtful reflections on this passage. And, and she says uh, that when we settle for the sign, there's a danger that the sign can be the thing we settle for instead of the thing that's being signified. The whole point of the sign is to help us reach our destination, but when we lose sight of that, we can become fixated upon the sign, and we can actually miss out on where it is that God wants us to go or what it is that God wants us to see. You know, it would be like driving down the road, and, you know, when you're driving back from up north and you start to see those signs, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul are that far away. It's directing us how far away. It's letting us know how to get there. And if you just stopped at the sign and took a picture and said, I made it there. No, you still have a ways to go. And so ironically, you know, if we become fixated on the sign, that instead of helping us reach our destination, it can just become a detour. And so Jesus' discomfort with signs is at least in part, I think, born of his recognition of that very human tendency. If you're fixated on the sign, you know, your response to when Jesus does something incredible would be, look at what he can do. But if you see the sign for what it signifies, you say instead, look at who Jesus is. Here's what O'Day says. She says, it is the sight of God's presence in Jesus' acts that transforms them from miracles to signs. Signs hold together the physical and, and, and the spiritual, the imminent and the transcendent in the same way that the incarnate word does. That's what John's gospel begins with. The word became flesh. So these signs bring these two seemingly incompatible worlds together. In the flesh and blood of the incarnation, the fullness of God is available to humanity, but only if one is able to see the visible as pointing to the invisible. In the healing of a sick boy, the fullness of God is also available. The physical healing provides a glimpse of the character of God in Jesus. Signs provide the opening to faith when one recognizes that through them God is present and available in the tangible and corporeal realm of human life. Now maybe that's a complicated statement. So if I were to distill it down, I would say that, you know, one of the danger with signs is, is that we will focus in this instance on the healing rather than the healer. Or take another example of a miracle that occurs in all of the Gospels, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. You'll focus on the multiplication and the mechanics of that rather than the identity of the multiplier. When we focus on the sign, we ask, you know, how can this be? How, how could this happen? When we instead look at who the, what the sign is pointing to, we are faced with that inescapable question, who can this be? And so the sign alone leads to awe and wonder, but if we actually follow the sign to where it's directing us to, it leads us to faith. And it's to the evolution of faith that we're going to now turn. 
And so, you know, when we look at, at, at faith and, and how it evolves this morning, we see that this faith starts with a crisis. It's crisis faith. This official son is sick to the point of death. He's powerless in these circumstances. He's helpless in these circumstances, but he's not hopeless. He does the one thing that he can think to do. He's heard rumors about this incredible person who, you know, did this sign in Cana of Galilee and has been down in Judea and, and, and the region of Jerusalem, and he's done these other signs. And so he, hear, he hears rumor. He hears words of this. And so he brings this crisis to Jesus. Now, of all the healing miracles that Jesus performs, I think maybe this is the most relatable for us. It's a story that's filled with pathos. We have a sick child, a sick loved one, a parent in desperate agony, searching for an answer anywhere. We, we have a powerful person. You know, it's in, in our translation, it says an official, but um, the, the Greek word means he's a royal official. He's somehow connected to the, the house of Herod. He's an, he's an aristocrat. He's a, he's a powerful person, but he finds that at the end of the day, in the face of certain circumstances, he's powerless. And though we don't have his same title or position within society as modern people, we can relate to him. You know, we live in the most uh, prosperous and technically advanced uh, you know, country in, in the history of human civilization. We have access to resources and knowledge and, and power that this royal official himself could not even fathom. Could never have dreamed of it. And yet we, like him, find ourselves in places, in crises, where our utter powerlessness is completely exposed. And we face that same question as he does at the moment. What can I do when I don't have anywhere to turn? That's when we turn to Jesus. And our you know, ultimate powerlessness in the face of the reality of death and, and of sickness, I, I think that's a reason why, you know, help, it's the most common prayer in the Bible. Help. And it's also the reason why I think, too, that the most common command is fear not. And so we're familiar with this, this concept of a, you know, a crisis of faith where, where doubts begin to trouble us and, and maybe you know, erode or, or overwhelm our faith. But, but, but we're also familiar with a faith of crisis. Simple faith. Direct faith. Humble faith. A faith that goes to the only place, the only person who can help. We hope can help, and that's to Jesus. And the thing about Christ's faith is, is no one is too powerful for, for, powerful for it. No one's too smart for it. No one's too rich for it, too educated for it, too successful for it. In, in the face of a crisis, we're all equal. Christ's faith is persistent. The official isn't put off by Jesus' initial response about signs. Upon hearing that, all he does is ask Jesus again, Sir, please Come down before my child dies. And that term for child, it's a term of endearment. You know, my little one, my little boy. Again, it's just a story that's filled with pathos. And upon this request, he receives from Jesus a good answer, a positive answer. But we have to know it's also not the answer that he was looking for. He wanted Jesus to come down, you know, come to his house. Maybe to lay hands on his child or, or to speak a word directly to him. So he says, come down to my house. And instead Jesus says to him, go. Go home. 
your son will live. But actually, it's not a future promise. It's not in the future tense. It's present. Jesus says, go, your son lives. And so the healing isn't a future promise from Jesus, kind of conditioned that if you hear this word and you go home and trust that I'm going to be able to do this, then it's going to happen. It's not a future promise conditioned upon his obedience. It's a present reality. As soon as Jesus speaks it, it happens right at that very moment. And so the healing does not await the faith of the royal official. You know, if he believes, goes home, then Jesus is going to heal his son. No, Jesus' word, it's his word, it's his promise that elicits faith. It isn't faith that elicits his promise. And that's such good news. And then John tells us when he heard the word of Christ, when he heard the promise of Christ, he believed. And this is the moment where, you know, Christ's faith evolves into something more like conscious faith. Because the man, you know, believes and leaves. In coming to Jesus, he was, you know, in Christ's faith, it, it's kind of an unconscious faith. It's, it's de- desperate. It's, it's, it's not aware of any sort of greater truth or greater reality than there's someone who can help me, which is enough. But here he's becoming conscious of his trust in Jesus' word and his promise in his ability. This is kind of faith becoming, evolving so that it becomes aware of itself and its implications. And so the man begs Jesus, says, come. And Jesus tells him to go. And the man believes in Jesus' power to heal, even though he's not physically present. And he begins, you know, what had to be just a long 10-mile-plus journey home with nothing to rely on but the word of Christ. And I want to say another reason that this story is so relatable to us is that most of us, we live our lives kind of in the world between crisis faith and conscious faith. We turn to Jesus in our circumstances because only he can save us, and we trust that in the end, you know, he will, but that we also recognize that we don't know the outcome. We know that not every prayer is going to be answered the way we want it to be. That not every sickness is going to be healed. Not every relationship is going to be reconciled. Not every thorn is going to be removed from our flesh. But we trust that in the end, Jesus will work everything to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as it says in Paul's letter to the Romans. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. That in the end, in the words of uh, the great medieval uh, mystic Julian of Norwich, that, that, you know, in the end all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That that's enough. And so on his way home, the official gets word from his servants that his son has indeed been, been healed, that the fever has left him, and he inquires of the hour when that happened. And they inform him it was the seventh hour. And here's where I think the, the ESV translation gets it, gets it right. You know, other translations would say it happened at one in the afternoon because for us, we have no concept of what the seventh hour means. So that's helpful for us in a certain sense to have that context, to know that it happened, I guess, early in the afternoon. But if we know anything about Scripture, we know that numbers have meaning. It's not that they're magical, but, but just that they have theological significance. So think about that. This happening at the seventh hour and seven is the number of divinity, of wholeness, of completion, of perfection. And so we say, this isn't a coincidence. 
Now, even the time when Jesus spoke this word is a sign that points beyond itself from what Jesus did to who Jesus is. And what a blessing to be on the road. And he has his faith confirmed, and that's the next evolution. So we start with crisis faith, and then there's conscious faith, and here we see confirmed faith. And well, you know, those of us who've trusted in Jesus for some time, we may never have had an experience quite like this where, you know, a prayer is answered and a miracle happens. Some of us have had it. But I believe that almost all of us can bear witness to those moments when our faith has been confirmed as well. A prayer answered. A fear taken away. Some kind of obstacle removed from our path. A peace that passes understanding. Just overwhelming our hearts. A dream becoming reality, a hope fulfilled, a a door opened, a challenge surmounted, a heart softened, forgiveness granted, a a reconciliation that you never saw coming, happening. Victories like this, great and small, they happen all of the time to those of us who trust in Jesus. And, and, And they're confirmations of that faith. They give us more confidence. So we have this evolution from crisis faith, conscious faith, confirmed faith. And lastly, we see with this man and his family, contagious faith. Because not only does he believe, but it says his whole household did as well. And there is something about real faith that's, that's contagious. When people see the power of God to change hearts, to change minds, to change lives, to change situations, you know, they want it for themselves. And real faith, transformative faith, it's not something, you know, if this man, he didn't turn into a, you know, hectoring moralist, telling everyone in his household how bad they were, that's not what happened. Nor does it turn you into kind of an antinomian libertine, I can do whatever I want, God has to forgive me, that's his job. True faith, it makes us gracious, it makes us grateful. And it makes us humble and joyful and obedient in a way that, 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 that the saying is true, that, that real faith, it's more caught than taught. And I think this is a perfect illustration of that truth. All right, so we've seen how the story kind of points us to the danger of signs, the evolution of this official's faith. But lastly, I just want to contrast these two sons. Because at the end of the day, well, well, this father has his only son restored to life. The story of Jesus is the story of the heavenly father losing his only begotten son to death. His son lives, God's son dies. And this royal official experiences God's power and his powerlessness over death. But Jesus' powerfulness is demonstrated when he, you know, the, the truly royal one, becomes powerless and achieves victory over death. The one son lives, but eventually we know he dies. The other son dies, but his story ends with him opening the doors of life. And so this whole story then It's a sign pointing beyond itself. We can look to and see not just what Jesus can do or has done for us, but but, but it's a window into who he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Word who became flesh and dwelled among us full of grace and truth. 
And when we behold him, we behold the glory of God. And when we trust in him, we enter into everlasting life. Which means that even though we shall die, we yet shall live. And when we might find ourselves in situations where we are helpless with Jesus, we are never, ever hopeless. And so let this official be an example that that we can come to him in whatever crisis we are, are facing. And we don't have to ever give up because ultimately he is never, ever going to let us down. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.